Jerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit, you're an author, you've written a lot on ecclesiology and particularly synodality as well. And we're going to look at the Amazon Synod, which took place recently. It has been said that it was remarkable for many good things. What's your take on it? Yeah, I was struck first by the remark of uh, Brendan Hoban. He's a Catholic priest in Ireland who's campaigned a lot for reform in the church and he's been a really prophetic voice and he has a column in the Western People every week and the column this week was entitled A Moment of Sheer Joy. So he was looking at the Amazon Synod and at last, he said, he's seeing Vatican II being implemented. So I think it it is a remarkable um, event And it shows, I think, that the whole idea of the Pope of reforming the Church through this method of what he calls synodality is gaining traction in a very significant kind of way. So he's always had this notion that change comes as much from the peripheries or from the bottom up as from the centre. And here you had the peripheries in the sense of the nine countries which are in the Amazon region coming to the centre of the Catholic Church, Rome, and bringing their concerns. And the bishops, because it was it was a bishop synod, uh, responding in a way that has implications for the whole church. So it was really quite a remarkable event. In terms mm. of the issues they discussed, as well as the process, which is, as you say, mm. dear to Pope Francis Hart, mm. in terms of that, what were the big decisions do you think that gave a real sense of this is Vatican II in action as well in terms of the, the joy that Brendan Hoban may have felt? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, to focus on the big issue was, of course, the environment and ecology and just the sense that the Amazon has a very unique place in the world's ecosystem. And so these nine countries bordering it, they had a consultation beforehand and they reckoned that 87,000 people were involved in that consultation. So that was considerable, even though the actual voting members of the Synod were just the bishops, 180 of those. But there were, in addition, 80 lay auditors who were part of the discussion and so on. But the, the environmental, the ecological issue was the big one. The rights of the indigenous people was also highlighted in in lots of different ways, including the dramatic way of those so-called statues controversy. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. And they did have this idea then very strongly that there ought to be an enculturated liturgy for the Amazon. In other words, to use the symbols, the traditions, the artefacts of the region as part of the uh, liturgy. And so they have been mandated now to come up with something that would be a rite, if you like, that was proper to the Amazonian people. The ones that are quite likely to get the most... um, headlines and that do reflect the spirit of Vatican II is around the whole area of ministry. So they have a quite a, a, a strong uh, phrase here towards the end of the document, which I thought it was worth actually quoting. They say it's urgent for the church to promote and confer ministries for men and women in an equitable manner. That's a very significant phrase in a church document. Yeah. Now, when it boiled down to it, what they came up with was that there may be different ways of providing for leadership in local communities. They approached it from the idea that the Eucharist is at the heart of a community, which is Vatican II, and obviously then priesthood is important. But they didn't limit it just to priesthood. They actually said 
that there may be ways in which uh, lay people can be mandated to be leaders of local communities, that that could be done in through a ritual act, a formal act, that it can be entrusted to either men or women in the absence of a priest and that they would have an official time-designated mandate. So there were various ways in which they uh, talked about that. They also then went much further in terms of the idea of Eucharist. And for the first time in a thousand years, they celebrated celibacy and priesthood by proposing the idea of married male priests. So this was the idea that men who had already got diaconate, who were from a, they call them so-called viri probati, from a good background, a good family and so on, that they could be ordained. And then with regard to the role of women, they noted very strongly that the discussion on the ordination to the diaconate of women seems to have stalled because the Pope's commission had met and couldn't agree on a way forward. They seemed to be in some way in gridlock and they obviously wanted that to be moved on and they did signal then that there were other ways in which women could uh, lead local communities which was recognising what was already happening in the Amazon. And then the Pope in his reply to that committed to re-establishing that commission on the diaconate of women and adding new members, presumably with the idea of helping to to break the gridlock. So I think all of that is very significant in this sense that what you had was this synodal process that he speaks about means that you have open and honest dialogue, and that was very clearly present, that you listen to the sense of the faithful, so the particularly lay people, but the faithful are also priests and bishops, as anybody who's been baptised, and the sense of the faithful was clearly in favour of this phrase, I think, was very key, confer ministries on men and women in an equitable manner. That's code for saying something more than they actually came to in the end, but you can see the direction in which it's going. Yeah, because that could apply to the diaconate, maybe a formal recognition of ministry in that regard. Yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of people have been writing about this, including the late the ecclesiologist Gerard Mannion, Irish, and who died rather tragically recently in, in Washington, that change when it comes is likely to come quite quickly. We, we sometimes imagine that because the Catholic Church is so slow to change. Gerard Mannion spoke about the particular question of the ordination of women and said, he imagined, now that's only one opinion, he imagined this could happen a lot more quickly than people uh, suspected. And I tend to agree with that. I think it's a bit like we've experienced in Ireland around the whole issue of gay people, for example. The culture has changed so rapidly in such a comparatively short time. Now, you're still talking years, you're not talking months. But I think the same thing is happening. This was first being discussed, say, in a very proactive way 25 years ago. People who were discussing it in Ireland were accused of being elitist and having a Dublin 4 mentality and so on. I find now when I go around the country in different parts, I've said that to you before, whether it's East Cork or Donegal or Armagh or Westport, that it's almost always the first question in people's minds. And very often it's grannies who are asking this question not people of great theological sophistication very often, though there are people of, of that kind of caliber.
But a lot of people are just, their gut instinct as Christian people is telling them they don't understand any of the theological reasons given for restricting the ordination to men. And I think that's being reflected in some of the language here. And I do think I argued myself in in the book I did on synodality that the diaconate, if you like, is a first step. Mm. It's to test the waters and so on. And that because the church has been so entrenched in this position and has invested so much of its moral capital in insisting that women can't be ordained, a vault fast overnight just isn't possible. But what is happening, you can see, is that through this method of discernment, honest debate, listening to the voice of the people, listening seriously to theological arguments, the bishops are gradually changing. Yeah, it's that, already apparent here. Yes, exactly. And I thought that was interesting that it mm. was bishops, yes, there were lay mm. observers and people there, but mm. for bishops to do that, given where mm. there is that conservative yeah. strand, but it does give a bit of hope that mm. if it's coming even from that source, mm. that maybe mm. this is really mm. a movement mm. that can move quickly. Mm. Once started, and perhaps that's why it's taking the commission on the diaconate is it has reached that impasse because they know that this is a very significant moment. Mm. No, I think it is a very significant moment, and just to say, I mean, I think this method of synodality was tried already in terms of the family, and there was that kind of minor but significant move in terms of divorce and remarried and access to communion, and that was a signal, if you like, that the method could produce concrete results. This now is a further example and a much more significant example in terms of the whole church. And if you add into it, Liverpool are now holding a synod with a lot of the same issues coming up. Australia, in a year's time, are going to have their plenary council with enormous buy-in from laity already. Germany has undertaken a binding synodal process in which so-called neuralgic issues like power, abuse of power, ordination, all these issues have been tackled. And the Germans, you can imagine, will do it with a great thoroughness and theological acumen and so on. And the Latin Americans, as in the Amazonian Synod, but with Salem, the conference of the Latin American churches, have always had this real ability to listen to the people. This It's this from below, the option for the poor and so on. So you get a real sense in the church now, and particularly that this Synod was held in Rome, that there's traction in this synodal method and you can see the results coming. And I think that's why Brendan Hoban, I I know him and I know his heart has been in this for a long time. He was almost afraid to hope, I think, that it could yield results. And this is why he's so joyful at the moment, because he begins to see, I think, a turning point, a critical mass. And I do think it's very significant. Now, none of us are able to predict the future with any certainty, but it's going in that direction. And of course, that's one reason why those who are on the extreme right of the church are so afraid at the moment. That was just taking me on to saying is that that they are getting afraid. And one of the ways that was manifest at, at the Synod was this whole focus on the wooden statue of a pregnant woman. It sort of became symbolic for the people on that extreme right mm. to a sense of almost frenzy. It hijacked the agenda. It mm. became the story in the right-wing paper. So I'm glad that we've discussed the many positive things that have come from that synod, and that's mm. what's really important. But let's look at this, mm. the statue in that context. Maybe you'd explain for people who don't know exactly what the, the, this we're talking about. 
Yeah, there were, I think, two statues in the end, but one in particular was presented at the opening ceremony. It was of a topless woman who was pregnant. And uh, there was great discussion as to who it represented. And obviously, the more Catholic view was it represented the Madonna, Our Lady. Mm. And the second statue then was also of a pregnant woman. And the idea was that it was almost like the visitation, Mm. Mary visiting um, Elizabeth and so on. And when the woman presented it to the Pope from the Amazon, she said, this is Our Lady of the Amazon. Even though we couldn't hear that clearly, but that is what she said and was Exactly, yeah, yeah. There was a kickback, if you like, from people who were afraid that this was using native indigenous statues in an idolatrous way, that this was in some way uh, polytheism, that it was worship of um, false gods and so on. The interesting thing was, and then the particularly the American uh, alt-right, if you like, the very traditionalist forces jumped on this. They don't like what Francis is doing with the church and they're looking out for various ways in which they can pounce, if you like. It's eerily reminiscent of the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels. You get this thing that they're they're laying traps all the time. So this was another example of that. One of the defenders, if you like, of what happened was saying, actually, this is a pro-life symbol, which was highly effective because these people are also coming from these outright people from a very strong pro-life position. So that was, I thought, a a good repost, if you like, to to what they were saying. But then the statues at some stage were removed, thrown into the Tiber. Uh, They were retrieved. The Pope made a big play about apologising for all of that. But I think it's beneath the kind of frothy controversy around that, the drama around it, it is pointing to just how change happens. And it it happens with resistance Mm -hmm. and with... But what was very interesting was there were something like 800 amendments, an unusually large number of amendments introduced to that text, the bishop's final text. And they had to go through each of the paragraphs and vote of them. And each of those paragraphs got over two thirds of a majority. And what it was signalling to me, the one that was closest was actually the ordination of married men, not the one about women. That that got a clearer majority. But what it signalled to me was you get a lot of froth in the mainstream media about opposition to to Pope and another cardinal comes out. In fact, you have about four cardinals who are quite well known has consistently opposed one or two others who have since deceased. Even number of bishops, similarly, but a very small number. And I think, in fact, the opposition is quite muted. It's quite, it's quite insignificant as against the, the large body of people who approve of what's going on. And the only question then is whether sometimes it's the people who make the most noise, who get the most publicity and so on, and the rest of us tend to stay a bit quiet and so on. So it really does challenge, I think, all of us. I mean, I was saying that at the start, that the Pope can't do this on its own. It's really inviting the rest of us to be part of this and to to join into this. And I think it is a bit disappointing, but understandable that at least the mainline media in Ireland and in other, we're still very Eurocentric the way we look at things. 
This has been an amazing event in Rome and how much have we heard about it in the mainline media? Very, very little. The other thing I think is interesting, Jerry, that at the heart of all of this will be an understanding of tradition and what tradition means. I mean, we talk Mm. about that alt-right maybe as the traditionalist, but tradition is not static and that's what's going Mm. to have to be looked at if we're going to move in these big areas of the ordination of married men and ordination of women in particular. And that's why the thinking of somebody like John Henry Newman is so important and the thinking of Bernard Lanigan, who many of the Jesuits and and associates of Jesuits would know well, this move from classical consciousness where tradition, if you like, was assumed to be unchanging to historical consciousness where it was understood that it was a living thing. And you had somebody like the well-known in America and in wider Yaroslav Pelikan, he's the church historian, and he had this lovely sort of pity phrase saying that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Uh, Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living the dead faith of the living. And it's traditionalism which gives tradition a bad name. And that sums it up very well. It's that sense of being locked into something that doesn't grow. And that's, of course, that's very untrue to the experience of the church. And that was found very much in Vatican II, where they went into Vatican II with one area where they knew they wanted to change, and that was the liturgy, because a lot of work had been done on the liturgy. And they began to realise in looking at that that the way of saying Mass with back to the people in Latin and so on wasn't always the way Mass had been said. And looking back historically, the liturgical expert had done that work in the 1920s and 1930s, so the council bishops were a bit prepared for that. But then when they looked more closely, they could see that some of that applied to other areas as well. And so you had this thing in the so-called new theology, nouvelle theology of ressourcement, going back to the sources. So beyond Thomas Aquinas, back to the early fathers and mothers of the church and back to the scriptures themselves. And you can see that within the scriptures. I mean, in Acts 10, for example, when Peter has this dream about the pagan Cornelius and, and that he's not unclean and that he doesn't have to be circumcised. And so he says at that point, I now realize that God does not have favorites. This is Peter who lived with Jesus all his life and who knew what Jesus was saying. And yet you can see the development that occurs within the scriptures. And of course, it has occurred right through the centuries of the church. So Whatever notion of tradition we have, we have to be very careful that it's not so moribund and so ossified that it's rigid and isn't true to what's in the scriptures themselves. And I think the Second Vatican Council in talking about what revelation was, was was right that it's not just a deposit of faith locked up, if you would, in a safe or in a tabernacle, it's an encounter with a living person. And we all know from our relationships and from how we meet people and so on that there's always growth. There's always times, of course, when we, when there isn't growth, times of breakdown, times of just agonising, boring habit, but then there's breakthrough as well and new things happen. And that's a good analogy for the way in which we explore the mystery of God and each generation explores it and we discover new things. And the great thing, I suppose, in our generation has been the discovery of human rights, for example, which we owe as much to the culture as to the church. In other words, the church is learning as well as teaching the culture. And that was a great insight in Vatican II as well. And it's happening now in the the area of 
gender equality that's happening in the area of sexuality and signs on because the church is teaching in those areas in particular particularly among young people is not received you can see it's not resting with the people and that's a real criterion of discernment where it is not peaceful reception what happened in the early church when they were discussing that issue of the gentiles was they had the council of jerusalem they went with the news to the community at antioch and the community received what they had to say with joy and that was a sign of reception there's no joy and peace around Catholic teaching on the ordination of women, on humanae vitae, on same-sex relationships. And so that's a sign, if you like, that there's something that needs re-looking at. And that's what's happening now. And I think there is something interesting about the symbol of this statue. It's a beautiful statue at whatever level it came from, even if it were to be a pagan statue. Mm-hmm. It's a pregnant woman. Symbols are multivalent. As somebody who's written a lot on women and women in the church, it is painful, I'm sure, for many women to see a statue like that become the focal point of huge, bitter dissent and controversy, enough that somebody would go and break into a church and take them and throw them in a river. In some ways, very symbolic itself of the sense of where the battle lies, the respect that is not there for women and children. Yeah, and I th- and, and the earth and, and the, the earth. earth exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was encouraging that the Pope himself was very clearly on the side of those who treasured the works of art and treasured those statues. And he said towards the end he was critical of elite Catholics who focus on tiny things but forget bigger issues. And he quoted, he was paraphrasing the French playwright Charles Pégu, and he says, they think they are with God, but are not brave enough to understand humanity. And there's something there that the early church knew. The poet Terence had this thing about nothing that is human is alien to me. Nihil humanum alienum me puto. And the early theologians latched into that. And they had this idea of the logos, which was the word, and the seeds of the word were present in all of human culture. So long before we developed into this thing of no salvation outside the Catholic Church, there was a much more generous interpretation of the existence of traces of God, footprints of God, as they put it another way, in all the world. And of course, we now believe that the Holy Spirit is active. And particularly, as you say, it's it's a highly symbolic thing, the whole attitude towards women. And I think that it is one of these things that just because somebody's a man or just because he's celibate doesn't mean he doesn't know anything about other issues. That's for, very true. But it's also very strange that you have had now a long tradition of male celibates pontificating, and I use that word because it is teaching magisterially about intimate issues of sexuality and gender. And there's something there that's not healthy about that. And really, chickens are coming home to roost there. And that kind of attitude is very, very unhealthy. And women, of course, sniff it out immediately. They know it. But I think more and more men are catching on to it as well. And I think that's one of the great signs of hope that I think the Pope himself would have come from a Latin American macho culture, wouldn't, by 
spontaneously have clued into all of that. I think he would have spontaneously clued into the poor in general and even increasing into the earth. But I think the women's issue and maybe sexual issues wouldn't have been as close to his own background. But I think he's catching on and I think he's been respectful. And I know people want him to go more quickly and avoid some of the more crass statements he makes at times in a colloquial kind of way. But he has said from the start he wants women in decision-making roles. He's set up this commission on the diaconate. He's now set up this process where these bishops very clearly uh, are going in a certain direction. He's not a foolish man. He knows the way things are going. And even if it wouldn't be his own spontaneous first item on the agenda, I think he's had to learn as he's gone along. And in any case, it's always been my contention that popes come and go and popes make mistakes and we shouldn't be relying on the pope. But if we have a church that is more encouraging of open and honest debate and listens to different voices and listens particularly to the sense of the faithful, the cat is out of the bag, as Michel Dillon, the Irish sociologist, said, that change will inevitably come. And I'm encouraged to think that he's six years in the job now, and that's a short enough time when you think of it, shorter than even Benedict got in the papacy, much shorter than John Paul II. But I do think that there is now a cultural transformation is taking place, the beginnings of an institutional transformation, and that there's real traction in the way the church is going. And I dare to hope that there will be no turning back, that we're on a, a path that's extremely hopeful. And so, like Brendan Hoban, it's a cause of great joy for me too.